We got pre-K kiddos can go into the car bay, learn to change oil. Learn to change some oil in there. It's exciting. Would you like to go learn to change oil? I kind of would. Maybe a tire? Okay. Thank you guys for participating with us this morning, worshiping. We are in the middle of a conversation, a bit of a discussion concerning the gospel. Somebody remind me what the word gospel means. Good news. Gospel means good news, which poses the question, what's so good about it? What's so good about it? And I hope that throughout this discussion, we can answer that question a little more thoroughly. Uh, For those of you that have been raised to know and to understand the gospel, most of us can get to the point where we say the gospel is good because it gives eternal life. Because of what Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection uh, those who believe can receive eternal life. He says that in, in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but will have eternal life. The dilemma is many of us as Christians and many people that are not Christians don't know how to go past eternal life and understand the implications of everyday life. Why is the gospel good to me Monday through Saturday? Why is it good to me today? Why is it good news for my marriage? Why is it good news for my family? Why is it good news for my job? Why is it good news for everyday life? And that's the question we want to be able to answer for a couple of reasons. Number one, it gives you greater purpose and uh, uh, for your everyday life. Number two, we want to equip you to proclaim the gospel into other people's everyday life. We want you to to hear people tell their story, to hear people tell what they're going through, to hear people tell what their day looks like, and for you to be able to seamlessly share how the gospel is good for what they're going through. Okay? Because one of our uh, three things that we believe is, is we are sent to proclaim good news to two different people groups. And one of those people groups is each other. And the other people group is others. But the dilemma is we live in a culture where uh, people don't think in light of eternal life. You're not going to encounter many people on the streets. You're not going to encounter many others and, and have a huge impact of where you're going to go when you die. That question once had a big impact. That question once produced them. But I think in the culture we live today, If we can proclaim the gospel in their everyday life, then eternal life becomes a little more tangible as well. So I don't think either one of them are wrong. I think we just need to be able to come at it from both directions. So part of this is equipping. I want to pray Ephesians. We're in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. We're just taking four different points that Paul points out in Ephesians 1. But I want us to look at Ephesians 1 verse 18. And we're just going to say that. Let's say this together. Uh, Let's. Read the, well, that's going to be tricky because everybody's got a different version. So here, I'm going to say it and I want you to repeat it with me, okay? That way we're all working out the same version. I'm going to say it. I want you to repeat it with me. I'll say a phrase. This is a prayer that Paul is praying over the church in Ephesus. A prayer that he is praying over the church in Ephesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance? In the saints. So Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart would be opened so that we understand how great and wealthy and incredible this good news is. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the glorious inheritance that you have received as one of the saints. So inheritance, that's our word for the day. Inheritance. Our last two days, I can't inheritance. You know, I was going to tell you what we talked about the last two weeks, but I was trying to write this word and I couldn't speak other words while I'm trying to write that word. So uh, in week one, we talked about, does anybody remember? We've got three words that we've pulled out of Ephesians chapter one. Anybody remember? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Adoption. Why is, it, why is the gospel good news? Because we're adopted. And we talked about the incredible nature of the adoption that we have as a child of God, and he is now our father. We talked a lot about that. Uh, so adoption, week two. Redemption. Week two was redemption. And we talked about how that is a ransom. He has paid the cost to buy us back. Redemption simply means ransom. We have been ransomed by the blood of Christ. His blood is the purchase price to get us out of slavery, out of death, out of uh, sin. And today's word is inheritance. What comes to mind when you see the word inheritance? What comes to mind? Family. Because that's where your inheritance often comes from. What else comes to mind? Stuff. Which can be a good thing or a bad thing, right? Either receive it or you got to deal with it. What else? There's no right or wrong answer. It's just what comes in your mind. Inheritance. What just came to your mind? Death. Okay. See how easy that was? Do you see how this works? I ask a question, you answer it. Oh my goodness. We're learning. We're learning. Right? Somebody else. Gage. Inheritance. What comes to mind? Gift. Your name's not Gage, but I'll take an answer anytime I can get it. Gage, what comes to mind? Inheritance, what comes to mind? Parents, okay. <laughs> Chris, you better watch your back, bro. <laughs> what am I getting? Right, so this is inheritance. This is what we typically think of when we think of inheritance. Uh, I had another one. Uh, money. That one came to my mind as well, as well as everything you just said. Um, uh, let me give you another word that goes with inheritance, but it has a slightly different flavor. And in the biblical text, it all goes together. The word that goes with inheritance is actually heritage. So th- they're on the same path, but they've got slightly different flavor. What, comes to, what, what is the difference with heritage and inheritance in your mind? Where you come from, okay? So your heritage is like or maybe even part of an inheritance, but it comes from 
your genealogy, your, your, your culture, your family. It's, it's like part of your past being brought into the present, right? Jack squat. <laughs> you get the heritage. Which is kind of that heritage, right? It's part of your, your family, your lineage, your genealogy, your culture, it's what you receive from that that may not be monetary, but it's value. Yeah. There you go. Something, here's the, the, the dictionary definition, something possessed as a result of one's natural situation or birth. Inheritance with lineage connection. Okay? So that's what that is. Um, so let me ask you a question. What heritage of faith have you received from your raising? What heritage of faith have you received from your raising? I want to give you, that's a big question. I want to narrow it in for you a little bit. So I'm going to give you some options. You don't, you're not bound by these options, but I'm just getting your brain working because I know that's a big question. So heritage of faith received from your raising could be uh, there's black and white rules. Everything's black and white. It's good or bad. Uh, or maybe you were raised to do your best and uh, hope for the best. All we can do is our best. Be good and hope that we make it in the end. Um, maybe there's no... God, there's no points. Maybe you left, maybe you received a heritage of faith, something like that. Or maybe Jesus lives at church. We go home. Maybe you got a heritage of faith that you went on Sundays, but you never heard about it on Monday, right? So those are just some options. You're not bound by those. You may have a, a better one, a more distinct one. I just wanted to get your brain flowing. What, what kind of heritage of faith did you receive from your raising? How would you tell your heritage? Okay. Don't do bad things in front of people that know us and know where we go to church or maybe they go to church with us. He's a deacon, so we need to behave. Right? Uh, Okay. So who else? What's the heritage of faith that you received in your raising? Okay. Rules-based Christianity. Okay. Somebody else.
Okay. So, so what? That, that's that's what you ended up living in. But what what did they give you or not give you? What what was their mentality that if you wouldn't have bucked the trend, you would have received their mentality? No God, no point, or just let's do our best and hope for the rest. You know. Okay. Maybe God exists, but we're just here to to be good and, and hope it all works out in the end. Yeah. You know, anybody else? You're not bound by those by any means. But that was a big question. We got time. So is that grace or gray? Yeah. Well, grace. Well, I know, but it's like if there's not a theology, it's just gray. Yeah. Eternal life through Jesus, but not abundant life. Uh, you just do your best for abundant life. That, that's on yours, but a, eternal life comes from him. Abundant life is dependent upon you. Hmm, that's an interesting theology that we could, we could chase that rabbit for a while, but we're not going to. Anyways, we receive a heritage of faith from our raising, whether we receive it and keep it or whether we, you know, whatever it is, we're, we're kind of born into this heritage that naturally flows from one generation or one culture to the next, right? You may receive your heritage because you live in Benton, Arkansas, which is a very unique faith bubble, right? If, if you've never been outside or if you've never done ministry outside of Saline County, I want to tell you that it's a very unique bubble. It's, 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 it's a... Uh, a culture of its own when it comes to Christianity, okay? Unlike many other that I've been to. Um, but maybe your heritage comes from a family. Uh, you know, Mike, you and I were talking on Thursday. It's like, did, were you, did you receive like a faith in the earlier? Like, well, we were here and there, but not really, you know? It just, that was just not really passed on. So, I mean, it's, but, but no matter what your church participation, no matter what any of that looked like, you received a heritage of faith in your raising, whether directly or indirectly, it was given to you. Okay. Um, I want to read to you Ephesians chapter one, verses 11 and 12. This is Paul. Who is he writing to? Anybody remember? So I already gave you the answer this morning. Some of you are still scared to say it because you thought you might get it wrong. So, <laughs> I love that. Love that word. Church in Ephesus um, what's Paul's relationship to the church in Ephesus? He helped start it. Very much the same as you guys are here today. He was a part of it, the initiator of it. So in verse 11, in him, who's him? Jesus. In Jesus, we have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. 
so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. One more time. In him we received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Might bring praise to his glory. It's interesting, uh, Paul's comments in Ephesians, as I begin to study this this week, um, really parallel that of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, if, if you're ever reading a difficult passage of Scripture and you don't know how to understand it, look for other passages, other passages in Scripture that help you understand what's being said. We, we call that interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Because if I read a hard passage of Scripture and I just, I think this means this, I could end up anywhere. But if I read a difficult passage of Scripture and I, I look at other parts of Scripture to help me understand it, then they all merge together and give me a very healthy understanding. That's what we do this week with Deuteronomy chapter 4. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says this to the people of Israel in chapter, verse 20. The Lord selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. He told Israel, God chose you out of Egypt and he made you to be his inheritance. He wanted you to be his people. So there's two things that Paul intends on us knowing, I believe, out of Ephesians 1. Two things that Paul wants us to know. And these are your big points for the day. I have an inheritance. I am an inheritance. Ultimately, I am his. He is mine. That's our point for the day. Paul wants us to know that I have an inheritance in Jesus. He also wants you to know that you are an inheritance because of Jesus. How do I summarize that? I am his and he is mine. I'm his inheritance. He is my inheritance. I think Paul intends on both of those things being clear out of Ephesians 1. So what does it mean that he has caused me to become his inheritance? Somebody know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10? Anybody got that memorized? You are saved by, through, not of, so that no man can boast. You are his workmanship. I'm saved by grace, through faith. Not of works. There's nothing I've done to become a child of God. It's solely a gift. There's no reason for me to brag about it. I am simply the handiwork of Jesus. He has made me to be what I am. He has made me to become an inheritance to our Heavenly Father. I belong to Him. I'm His handiwork. None of us was born a child of God. We were born children under wrath. 
That's what Paul says in Ephesians. None of us was born a child of God. We're born children of wrath. Yet as he brought Israel out of Egypt, he ransomed me from death, adopting me to sit with him in the heavens. I am his. I am his. It's his grace. It's his goodness. It's his workmanship. And I am his inheritance. I am his. I'm his inheritance. I belong to him. I'm his handiwork. It was his grace that bought me. It was his blood that paid for me. It was his hands that made me. I'm his. His handiwork. I think we're supposed to be impressed with this idea. But even in my studies and by the look of your face, I don't feel like we are. I had this thought in my studies and I I have this thought even now as I look into your face. I am his. His grace, his handiwork, his possession. Paul wants us to be incredibly impressed with this, but we're not. Why? Why is this so unimpressive? You know my follow-up. What do you mean by that, Blaine? We're desensitized to that truth. Okay, because it's... the reverse to what you just said was I'm, I'm not impressed with that when I don't feel a need to be dependent upon that. But when life and death depends upon that reality, I become very impressed very quick. Right? So we don't think it's a big deal because we're not engaged in the warfare. We're not surrendered to the process, whatever it is that, that, or maybe we're still blinded to the process and we haven't had the eyes of our heart open to understand the glorious wealth of the inheritance we have. Or we're still blinded to the war that we're consumed by and we think it's normal. There's so many reasons we're so unimpressed with this statement, but this is such a miraculous, incredibly weighty, life-changing, eternity-changing statement. I am his inheritance. He has made me to become his. He has bought me. He has adopted me. I belong to him. I always will. This is the greatest truth in human history. I think the the reason that I came up with uh, was... Um, in First Peter chapter one, this is a state, uh, a passage that I depend upon a lot in my own life. Peter says this: "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable." So there's that word again: 
It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this even though for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief and various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Simply put, a great part of why it's unimpressive to belong to God for eternal life, it's kept in heaven. You can't see it yet. Your salvation is ready to be revealed, and for right now it's kept in heaven. I think that's part of why many of us are so unimpressed with this. The gospel, number one, results in eternal life for those who believe. I hadn't seen it yet. took to purchase that yeah so there's many layers to this but Peter says you're being guarded by faith God's power is guarding you right now by faith until your salvation is revealed but for now it's kept in heaven so you're like what I've already been saved I already received Christ yes you have been saved but there's a day of salvation that's coming where all these things will be visible for now the, the product of your salvation is kept in heaven for you. you you belong to God you're made by God you're a child of God you're redeemed by God and you're being kept right now by God until the return of Jesus the, the fruit of your salvation but all that's in heaven right now while you're here on earth. I think there's something to that for why it's unimpressive to us. Faith. If we're being guarded by the power of God through faith, and what is faith? Faith is, according to Hebrews, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance, I hope that this message about Jesus is right. I hope it's true. Yes, I have assurance that it's true, even though what? Even though I've never seen it, like you said. The gospel of Jesus is not a story that's been passed down. It's a story that's been told since an event that happened. Okay? It wasn't manufactured in order to account for our sins. No, it happened in order to account for our sins, and it's been told generation after generation ever since. We didn't see it. We weren't there for the resurrection, but I know without a shadow of a doubt, I'm fully confident that it happened. What do you call that? You call it faith. It doesn't mean I hope that it happened. It means I know that it happened. Did you see it? No. But I still have complete conviction that it did. That's faith. That's faith. And through that type of faith, God is guarding you right now until, until you see what you haven't seen, but you're certain exists. Right? 
He's guarding you right now through that faith. Assurance, certainty of things hoped for as if they existed. And so there's, there's hope. It's like, I hope we get to go to Disneyland. And you don't know if that's going to happen. But my hope is in Jesus. That means I'm standing, I'm existing, I'm moving. Why? Because my hope is in him. I know he exists. I'm certain. It's not a wishful thing. It's a certainty thing. All right? That's faith. That's what he's talking about. That's how he's guarding us. So our family, I just want to put a story to this. Our family... A year ago this month, told the church we were serving at that we're leaving so that we can start a new church, right? At that point, all of our finances came from our previous ministry, the church that we told we're leaving. All of our insurance came from the church that we told we were leaving. So in that moment, in that announcement, I still remember standing up in front of the church and saying, thank you for the past six years, but in a few months we will be gone. And we're going to plant new churches. In that moment, with that announcement, we were giving up every bit of security that we thought we had. Every single bit of it. My wife didn't have a part-time job. She had a sometime job. Like, I mean, it wasn't even full-time enough to be part-time. We had no financial support figured out. Zero. Zero. Uh, we had no people who had agreed to go with us. Not like some people, just a few. No, no, zero. Zero. There was zero people committed, zero finances committed, zero idea of where we were going to be. We had absolutely nothing figured out. There was no visual, tangible storytelling evidence that we had a clue what the heck we were doing. But we stood in front of the church with complete confidence that this was exactly what we were supposed to be doing. This is what God had called us to. This is what was before us. We didn't hope it worked out. Our hope was in the one who was going to make it work out. Right? And over the next 12 months, which brings us to right here, we've seen a number of you come alongside of us, become part of our team, become part of our family We've seen people come alongside of us and become financial supporters to, to, to give us freedom to do what we're doing. We've seen another church planted out of us simply going to, to start this church. And, and, and who would have ever dreamed that 12 months into this, we'd say, no, we're not starting one church, but we're starting two churches in central Arkansas. That is the most ridiculous story I could have ever made up. But it's where we're at. And financially, not only through financial supporters to help us do ministry, but as soon as we made that announcement, as soon as we left our last church, phone calls for for Shelly's design business have come in. Phone calls for my construction abilities have come in. We haven't missed a bill. We haven't missed anything. Now, I don't have a direct deposit anymore. X amount of dollars doesn't get drafted every Friday. I don't see that, but you know what? The things I have seen give me confidence for the things I haven't seen. And that's the moral of the story. We can sit here and we can talk about my salvation is being kept in heaven for me and we can be so unimpressed or we can walk by faith and the things that we do see give us confidence in the things we don't see. I am more excited about heaven today than I was 12 months ago. Why? Because the things I've seen in the last 12 months. 
And if you're not seeing anything in today, then you're not expecting anything in eternity. But the more you see today, the more you see in everyday life, the more you expect in eternal life. The more miracles, the more provisions, the more grace, the more evidence you see as you walk by faith, oh, the sweeter the taste of heaven becomes. Because this is just a down payment. I mean, we had not seen anything yet. The things I see give me greater confidence than the things I don't see. Now the question is, are we seeing anything? And if we're not seeing anything, we're probably not walking by faith because once you walk by faith, I heard it said that uh, some people want to wait till they see it to believe it, but, but if you believe it and you walk in it, you're going to see it, right? If you, if you believe it and, and walk in it, you're going to see it. Um, so I, I want to read a passage to you. I want to read a passage to you. Uh, or it says, I am his inheritance. I'm adopted, ransomed, sit with him in the heavens. But until then, we have a variety of trials to face in everyday life. And like Shelley said, in those trials, the truth that I am his and he is mine, trump every trial we'll face. That inheritance trumps every trial. I want to read to you Deuteronomy 4. And, and, and read with me. Deuteronomy 4, if you have a Bible, we're going to read verses 1 through 8, and I'm going to ask you what stands out in this passage. Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 8, what stands out to you in this passage? So pay attention closely as we read. Now Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I'm teaching you to follow. So that you may live, enter, and take possession of the land the Lord your God, your fathers, has given you. You must not add anything to what I command you or take anything away from it. So that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I am giving you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did uh, at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed everyone of you who followed Baal of Peor. But you have remained faithful to the Lord your God and are all alive today. Look, I have taught you the statutes and ordinances as the Lord your God has commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to possess. Carefully follow them for this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. When they hear all about those statutes that they will say this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances like the entire law that I set before you today? I know it's a lot, but what stands out to you as we read that? What jumps out to you? Okay, so commandments and don't do any math. Don't add or subtract. Okay, what else? What stands out to you? Okay. They'll tell us we are wise and understanding. Okay, what else? 
Don't overthink it. Everybody wants to sound wise and understanding when you give an answer. Okay. So, watch yourself. What stood out in that? Is it the, the, the watch yourself part, the be careful part, or the not forgetting part? All of it. Watch yourself. Don't forget. Okay? Give me two more answers. That's my quota before I move on. Okay? Teach them what? Teach kids the laws. Okay. What were you going to say? Uh, the commandments evidence that God loves them. Okay. So commandments equals love of God. Keep God near. Keep him near? Oh. So we're going to nations there as God near to us more our God is more than Yep. Okay. So here's the deal. What you see in this passage is influenced by the heritage of faith you received in your raising. I believe that. As you read that and you saw whatever jumped off off the page of you was probably influenced by the heritage of faith you received in your raising. Keep the commandments. Do them. Don't do other things. Teach the law. Obey the law. You'll be perceived as wise and understanding. Right? The commandments, the statutes, the law. Keep it. Teach it. Multiply it. It's all about the statutes, the law, the commandments. When in actuality, this whole passage revolves around what Blaine just said. Lord your God is near to you. He's near to you. Nobody else on the planet has a God so close that he actually hears when you pray to him. Nobody else. Nobody else. And when you go into those other places, you're going to obey him. You're going to continue because it's, it's in obeying his commands that you continue to separate yourself from the other people and not get caught up in their idolatry. And you remain focused on the one God who can hear you and not the, the wood and the stone that can't. The whole passage is about the God who is near to his kids and hears them and listens to them when they pray. Everything else is about staying away from the idolatry and beginning to chase and dream and worship things that can't hear you. Because if you don't keep the commandments, the the, the whole fear was you're going to worship a wooden fence post. You're going to worship a stone set on your shelf. It's idolatry. But in keeping the commands, you're staying away from idolatry and keeping your eyes focused on the God who hears and is near. The greatest distraction for believers and non-believers, I believe, is keeping us from enjoying God is the rules. So I'm going to make a bold statement and I'm going to back it up as we finish up this talk. I believe one of the biggest distractions for believers and non-believers keeping you from enjoying the presence of God is the rules of God. We're so focused 
on the statutes and the commandments and the law that you don't even know all of that was given to you so that you might enjoy the presence of God in your life. One of the biggest distractions for non-believers to ever come into Christ is thinking that it's all about the law. It's all about the commandments. Keep them, teach them, pass them, force others to do the same. Keeping us from enjoying the presence of God. I know that's a dangerous statement if you take it out of context and somebody can listen to our podcast and run with it. And say, well, you don't expect people to obey. Well, let's, let's dig a little deeper through a couple of case studies. First one, consider this. Let's discuss the following scenarios by those who are distracted by rules. So assume a non-believer who lives a good life and benefits others, thinking Christianity is a set of rules. What happens to the non-believer who lives the good life and, and is valuable and beneficial to others and he thinks Christianity is about a bunch of rules? Let's talk about how that fleshes out and where that goes. How do the rules keep him from enjoying the presence of God? Doesn't believe Jesus' death and resurrection. I do good. I help others. Isn't Christianity really just about a bunch of rules? A non-believer lives a good life. He helps others. And he thinks Christianity is a list of rules. How is that mindset keeping him from enjoying the presence of God? Oh, what's Johnny? I mean, you're, you're describing my best friend that I grew up with. Okay. Hang out with us a lot. The bridge His biggest issue was that I, I live a good life. I do all these things, but, but I drink sometimes. That means I can't go to church. Okay. So I have friends that think they're good so they don't need the gospel. You have friends that they are good. You don't have to be a Christian to be a good person, right? Can, can we admit that? Some of the most enjoyable people in my life are non-believers. Some of the most miserable people in my life are believers. So it's, yeah, it's relative. Goodness is relative. 
But here's the deal. In, in, in the eyes of the non-believer who is a good person, who does good, who helps others, um, a paycheck will always be a paycheck. It'll never be God's provisions. When we get a job, and Mike was with me as I finished the job up Thursday, when I reflect on the patio we built, I'm like, 12 months ago, we gave away every bit of income we ever were going to have, and then she called me and asked me to build a patio. That is God providing because we pursued none of it. Now a paycheck is provisioned by a God whom I enjoy his presence. That has nothing to do with me keeping rules and being good. Right? And to a non-believer, a paycheck will always be a paycheck and there'll never be miraculous provisions. Never. To a non-believer who does good, your marriage will always be a marriage and it will be an end to your pleasure. It will never be someone fit to account for your weaknesses designed for you to, to walk together, to become one in the power of the Holy Spirit. It will never be an incredible, miraculous relationship that is designed and unified by God. It will always be a means to an end for me. You'll never enjoy the intent of marriage. You'll never celebrate in the provisions of a payment. You'll never taste a steak and and give glory to the one who made the cow. It'll always just be a stake. But there are commands, there are rules, there, there are teachings of Scripture that are necessary to lead. Even Paul, when he taught about marriage, he said, I'm not even talking about marriage, I'm talking about Jesus in the church. Because marriage is not an end to itself, it is to point to Jesus and the church and the gospel. So I cannot, I will not, I would not ever even think I can enjoy marriage in its intended purpose in unbelief. It requires the gospel for me to enjoy the presence of God and the purpose of marriage for what it was designed for. Now, the instruction on marriage that some believe are rules, regulation, and law are simply teaching me to walk in what was designed by God for my pleasure and his glory. Does that make sense? It's not a rule. It's teaching you to walk in the presence of God for your joy. That's what some perceive as rules. But it's really him saying, this is how I designed it. You walk in it, I'll prove myself. It's not rules and regulations and laws. So let's look at the next case. A a Christian making a life decision but does not know what God's will is. He believes Christianity is a set of laws. He's a believer. He's got to make a big choice in life, but he doesn't know the will of God. How does that turn out for him if he has a rules-focused Christianity? I see it every day. If he makes the wrong decision, God's going to whoop my honey and I'm going to be under his condiment. Yeah, I'm I'm outside God's will. I'm going to get punished. I'm going to get destroyed. God's wrath is on me for making the wrong decision. First Peter chapter one, the one I read to you earlier has always been my go-to for this guy. You are being kept by faith through grace. He is 
God's power is keeping you and you will never out-mistake God's power to keep you. You'll never screw up his plans. You're not going to disrupt his sovereignty, right? Now you walk whatever walks you close to the Lord and he gives you instructions along the way to stay near and to enjoy him, but you're not going to screw God's plan up. There is whom the sun sets free is free. Yes, a father that loves his kid disciplines his kid. He whacks him on the rear end because he loves him, but he's not going to beat you because you made an honest mistake. He's going to help you. He's going to guide you. He's going to love you. He's going to steer you. Right? Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. We don't need to be enslaved by simple decisions thinking we're going to mess God's plan up. A believer in our church family who struggles to obey simple teaching. He thinks Christianity is a set of rules. He's new to faith and he he struggles to obey simple, basic teaching. What happens to this guy? He He manages sin. How well is he doing at it? Not very well. So if he's not doing well at managing it, what, what happens then? What cycle? What I would go back to Josh too and say that what he said earlier, you begin to identify yourself by that and not as a child of God too. And then if you identify yourself by that, you continue in that and that becomes your identity. You never get to enjoy the presence of God as you were designed to because you're defined by the mistake that you continue to make over and over instead of being designed by the forgiveness and the redemption that you have in the blood of Christ. It takes a lot of work to unravel that. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Or it takes a family to speak the gospel to you so that you can say, ah, that's not who I am. That's not me. Yeah, I've done that, but that's not my identity. Let's go to the last one. An old believer in our church community who doesn't understand those who struggle in simple obedience. Rules-based guy looks at the guy across the way who struggles to obey the same thing over and over and over, and that's now his identity. And the old guy looks across at the young guy if he's focused on rules and he thinks that's the basis of Christian faith, what is he, what's the trap that happens there? Judgment. Yeah. No compassion. No compassion whatsoever. He won't, he won't invest in the young man because he doesn't have compassion to invest in him, thinks it's a hopeless cause. No concept. Yeah, those who... Those who have been forgiven much do what? They forgive much. Yeah. All right, so whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we're a believer, whether we're a non-believer, wherever we're at in our journey, we've got to understand that the, the instruction, the rules that, that, that the Scriptures proclaim to us are not meant to enslave us and define us. They are meant to guide us and steer us as we walk close to the Lord and enjoy His presence. To enjoy his creation for its intended purpose. How he designed it. We get to walk in it. We get to walk in marriage. We get to walk in his provisions. We get to walk in his instructions. We get to do all these things and enjoy them at their fullest as we walk in the way he designed it. But his 
his, his instructions are not do this, don't do that. I love you or I hate you. No, he loves you based on the merit of Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection, not on how you handle his instruction. Now, how you enjoy being his child and him being your inheritance. Yes, that comes through obedience to the instruction. You will never enjoy having God as your inheritance if you do not receive his instruction. If you do not receive his design for marriage, his design for life. C.S. Lewis says this, I think all Christians would agree with me that Christianity seems at first to be about morality, all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on out of all that into something beyond. Christianity at first seems to be about morality, but eventually it leads you out of that into something beyond. What is the something beyond that you think C.S. Lewis was talking about? C.S. Lewis. C.W. Lewis. The Benton thing. It started with morality, but it led to something so much greater. What do you think that is? This is where we're closing. Relationship? Freedom. Freedom? Grace. Grace. Moses says this something is God being with near and hearing us. Everything you just just said wraps up into that. Seems to be about morality. Do this, don't do that, be a good person. But when we get into it and we follow Christ, we're like, it's not about morality at all. It's about God being near. It's about God hearing. In a sense, it's about he is mine and I am his. Far greater than any morality-based thing we could create. That's why Paul's instruction for everyday life are never about everyday life. At some point, we're going to go through Ephesians, and I'm going to explain that comment, but read through the book of Ephesians. Go home this evening and read it. It's only six chapters. You can read it in about 30 minutes. Paul's instructions about everyday life are never about everyday life. They're always about eternal life. When he teaches you about something practical, something meaningful, something tangible, it's always about something greater. It's always about something greater. That's why he says, really, when I'm talking about parenting, I'm not really talking about parenting. When I'm talking about marriage, it's not really about marriage. But all of those relationships are reflections of our relationship with Jesus. It is eternal life. It is everyday life. But you can't pull those things apart. In Christ, all things are not as they seem. They're better. I am am an inheritance. And he is my inheritance. I am his and he is mine. Man, if we don't get in awe of that truth at some point. We may still be dead in our trespass and sin, blinded to our obedience to the evil one. How do we get set free? Call upon the name of the Lord. It's your faith in Jesus. He's the forgiver, the redeemer, the adopter. You guys come up and lead us in a time of worship. If we're going to make a dent, an impact, if God's going to use us in any way in this county, 
we have to set our eyes on what Lewis said is something beyond what originally seemed like morality. We're going to have to find that something beyond where I am his and he is mine. Let's pray. God, thank you for your teaching. Thank you for creating us in Christ Jesus to be the handiwork of God. God, in our, in our brokenness, in our ridiculous uh, just stumbling through life, uh, you still look at us and say that we are created in Christ Jesus to bring glory and praise and honor and to show the glorious wealth of your inheritance. You still look at us and say, man, I'm going to show the world something through these, through these people. Help us enjoy the presence of our Father. Help us understand that the the teaching that sometimes many people perceive as rules is just simply teaching us to walk in your presence, to enjoy life according to your design. Yeah, we're obedient people. We believe in the teachings of the Scripture. We believe in the instructions of those who have come before us and been written according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We believe that it is true, it is absolute, it is unchanging, that it is not enslaving. It was all meant to set us free as we walk by faith in your Son. It was all meant as fence to protect us, to guard us, to guide us, not to enslave us. Help us to be a people who are free and are used to set others free as well. In Jesus' name.